Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. On this episode of the most notorious podcast, the most ruthless group of killers in American history, Abe, Kid Twist, Relis, and Murder, Inc. One theory is that he was called Kid Twist because his favorite murder weapon was an ice pick, and he would twist the ice pick into people's temples. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. You are here again. Excellent. So, on to the show. It is with great pleasure that I introduce my guest, Michael Cannell. He was a New York Times editor for seven years and has written for The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, Sports Illustrated, and many other magazines. He is also the author of four books, including Incendiary, the Psychiatrist, the Mad Bomber, and the Invention of Criminal Profiling. And the book he is here to talk about today is called A Brotherhood Betrayed, The Man Behind the Rise and Fall of Murder, Inc. Thanks for coming on. Great to have you. Eric, this is great. Thank you so much. Yes. Well, what an epic story you have put together. Tackling a subject like Murder, Inc. could not have been an easy task. How long did it take you to write this book? I'm not sure exactly, Eric. I I think that my contract with the publisher called for a delivery date at at two and a half years. Um, After the editing, with a little back and forth with my editor, it was a little longer than that. But it was total immersion into a, a lot of mob history, not just mob history, but Brooklyn history, New York history, really American history. There is, uh, I've tried to tried to write it so that it it is cinematic, so that it is it it so that it feels as if it were a Netflix series, and so of course that required um, an enormous amount of research. I really did not want to write it as if I were writing an encyclopedia or a history book with a capital H. Uh, I wanted to write something that felt felt immersive um, and and felt like a movie. And to do that, it just, it requires a lot more research. Right, right. So much of your book centers around the Brownsville neighborhood of Brooklyn, New York. Would you mind sharing with us what the area was like in the 1920s and 30s? Yes. I mean, in those days, uh, famously, when immigrants arrived in in New York, they tended to live in the the crowded um, ghetto blocks of the Lower East Side. At a certain point in, you know, in the 1920s, um, Brownsville, East New York, and other neighborhoods in the kind of the outer section of Brooklyn emerged as alternatives to the Lower East Side. 
That was in part just because of overcrowding on the Lower East Side. It was also because the the bridges spanning the East River um, began to develop, and most particularly because the subway um, started to go, you know, reach reach out in, into Brooklyn. And so Brownsville developed as a satellite of the of the Lower East Side. It was uh, a Jewish neighborhood, a place where people could find work in, in the garment industry. It was filled with tenement buildings. It was it was maybe the toughest neighborhood in all of America at that time. Maybe the toughest neighborhood that's ever existed. Tenement buildings, street gangs, poverty. And so like the Lower East Side, it became an incubator for for young mobsters. And out of Brownsville came a man named Abe Relez, nicknamed Kid Twist, who who would come to be the head of Murder Incorporated. And he, um, Brownsville, uh, was as I mentioned a Jewish neighborhood. It was adjacent to Italian neighborhoods, and so out of this world came came Jewish gangsters who also worked in concert with Italian gangsters, and that was something new. That was that was a new development for organized crime. So Abrellis is the central character in your story. Would you talk a bit about his early background and how he fell into a life of crime? Yeah, Abe Relez's parents were immigrants from what we would what we now call Austria, uh, Jewish immigrants. Um, they did live on the Lower East Side briefly, and then moved out to to Brownsville. His his father um, sold clothes from a push cart. Um, they came with many of the customs, uh, the habits. Um, the food of the old world. And so Abe Rellas grew up as many children in that circumstance did wanting to be American. The habits of his parents were foreign to him. He, he felt ashamed by them. He wanted to be an American and a successful American. And for a Jewish kid growing up in the 20s in Brooklyn, not a lot of roads to success um, available. Being a gangster was a shortcut to the American idea of prosperity and success. So Abrellas dropped out of school in eighth grade and started running errands for a local Italian gangster named Louis Capone, no relation to Al Capone. Um, he was what they called a schlammer, a Yiddish word for like a guy who would strong arm you. So he collected monies, money from um, grocers and markets um, that had to pay tribute to the local mob. He shook down people who ran houses of prostitution. He was the the tough guy on the street who did the bidding of of the gang and he he worked his way worked his way up the chain of command until he was the boss in Brooklyn and at that point he began to get the notice of the really big bosses over in in Manhattan how did he get the nickname kid twist well that's a that's a good good question i mean nobody really has an answer to that one theory is that he was called Kid Twist because his favorite murder weapon was an ice pick, and he would twist the ice pick into people's temples. More likely, he named himself after one of the really early and original Jewish gangsters who, who was called Kid Twist, somebody who was shot and died on the, the Coney Island boardwalk in a dispute over over a woman. I think the latter is is more likely, but there's no there's no real answer to that. What did he look like? You know, he had a strange appearance, Eric. He was um he was short. 
and he was he was he he people always remarked on how his arms dangled down to his knees it was almost like he was a little deformed and he had of course he spoke in the you know that thick brooklyn accent you know dems and d's and he had a he had a real um speech impediment he had a he had a kind of lisp and so when people looked at him or talked to him they assumed that he was kind of moronic but he wasn't he was extremely shrewd and he would prove to have a, an encyclopedic memory for all of the gang's activities and the many murders that he was um, associated with. And more than anything, like many, many uh, leaders with a kind of psychopathic uh, tendencies, he had, a, he had a kind of evil genius for identifying people's weaknesses and exploiting them, which all of which made him a kind of natural leader in the underworld. And many of his criminal associates were his childhood friends. They were childhood friends. And um, they started out as just, you know, street thugs as, as, as teenagers. But um, by the time they were in their early 20s, they were looking up the ranks at the three Shapiro brothers who really ruled that part of Brooklyn in those days. And the Shapiro brothers had employed Relez and his friends to do their dirty work. And Abe Relez did not feel appreciated by, by the, the Shapiro brothers. The Shapiro brothers were arrogant and, and um, took him for granted. And so Abrellas decided he was going to overthrow the Shapiro brothers. But you, he couldn't just decide to do that on his own. He had to get permission to do that. And so he went to Albert Anastasia, um, the famous mob lord who ruled the Brooklyn docks, and proposed that uh, if Albert Anastasia supported him in his coup, that he would kick back a portion of whatever money he made to Anastasia. Anastasia gave his blessing, and what followed was a street war between Abrellas and his crew and the three Shapiro brothers. Um, many street skirmishes, drive-by shootings. And what ended up working for Rellas is that in order to gain the muscle to overthrow the Shapiro brothers, he recruited help from the Italian mobsters in the adjacent neighborhoods. And he called this multi-ethnic gang that he had put together the combination. The combination because it was part Jewish, part Italian. And with their help, Abrellas was able to assassinate the Shapiro brothers one by one and take over their operations, their gambling operations, their prostitution operations, their racketeering operations. And so now Abrellas had proven that he was the toughest guy in the toughest neighborhood in America. And so when the big bosses, Lepke Buchholter, Lucky Luciano, etc. When they had reason to look for a truly tough up-and-comer, Abrellas was was the guy who came to mind. He'd actually done a stint in a reform school, and part of the anger towards the Shapiro brothers was that he had felt abandoned by them. Yeah, that's exactly right, Eric. The the way things worked in those days is that is that the Shapiro brothers, like all gangsters, plowed part of their profits back into paying off cops, paying off judges, so that when anybody in their orbit um, was arrested, they could get off on bail very easily and get the charges dismissed. It was a very neat legal operation that allowed them to get out of jail after 24 hours and not really have to go to jail. But um, 
That system broke down at one point, and Abe Rellas, as you mentioned, had to, because he was so young, he went to reformatory school. And while he was in reformatory school, you could just kind of see that he was he was waiting for his chance to get back to Brooklyn. He felt that the Shapiro brothers had not stood up for him. He thought that he could do um, what they did better than they did. And so when he got, got back to got to back to Brooklyn he put together um his Jewish Italian gang and and that was the end of the Shapiro brothers and two of his closest confidants friends were Bugsy Goldstein and Pittsburgh Phil Strauss and they not only grew up together but they grew in violence together too right i mean these were these were young men who who had sadistic tendencies, and particularly Pittsburgh Phil Strauss, really, uh, you know, he was a guy who put his hand in the air whenever anybody had to be murdered. He wanted to do it. He had a tendency to keep shooting somebody after they were killed. He was a straight-up sadist and a and a psychopath, but. He served a real purpose for Abrellas at a time when Abrellas was, you know, trying to to carve out a place for him himself in a, in a very tough world. Pittsburgh Phil Strauss was a good friend to have, and he had a, a signature form of torture. Uh, I guess that would be a way to put it, where he would tie someone up behind their back. Right. He would, he was his, right. It was sort of his signature. His signature move was to, as you say, to tie somebody up to, you know, from their ankles to their throat with a noose around their throat, kind of trust them, I guess is the way you would put it. And, um, so when, when the victim, you know, struggled or kicked, they would slowly strangle themselves to death and with his sadistic sensibility, um, Pittsburgh Phil Strauss loved this and entertained himself by, by, by doing this and kind of, you know, by some accounts laughed while these people, you know, squirmed and strangled themselves to death. Oh. So, so he basically, as you mentioned, with permission from his higher-ups, took control of the Shapiro brothers' rackets how did he go from the combination to Murder, Inc.? Right. So so while all of this is happening that we're talking about, while Relez is fighting his way up to the top ranks of that part of, of Brooklyn, what, what, what else is in, that's happening in New York is that Lucky Luciano is doing away with the old Sicilian and Neapolitan mafia, the old Italian guys who had come to New York from Italy, not really because they wanted to be Americans, but because they wanted to get away from prosecution in Italy. And for the most part, these old these old men would just plant themselves in lower Manhattan and carry on as they did in 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 Italy. And they were very parochial they were um, they were all about vendettas, and they didn't trust each other. And the next generation of mafia leaders did not want to run things that way. A man like Lucky Luciano was born in America. He didn't want to perpetuate the kind of petty rivalries that the old guys were fixated on. Um, Lucky Luciano wanted to, he wanted to make money. He wanted to run organized crime like a profitable American corporation. In fact, I think at one point he even said he wanted to run it like General Motors. And so he set up what was basically a board of directors. And he created a confederacy of mobs in cities across the country, from Miami to Chicago to St. Louis to Los Angeles. And 
uh, he really ran it almost like McDonald's with franchises around the country. And one of the one of the features that Lucky Luciano wanted to introduce was an assassination squad, so that if somebody in you know, in Cleveland, in the Cleveland mob or the Miami mob, had reason to suspect that one of their men was cooperating with the authorities or was transgressing in some other way. All they had to do was pick up the phone and call New York. And Abe Reles and his associates in what came to be called Murder, Inc. would go to Cleveland or Miami and in a very neat and efficient manner would would murder the offender and get on the next flight home. Um, very often, this was Pittsburgh Phil Strauss. He would pack a bag like anybody in middle management with a clean um, with a clean change of clothes, but also a gun and a, and a rope and a meat cleaver as well. I think you're right. And, and a meat cleaver. And often they would not know the name of the person that they were killing. They would be delivered by the local mob to some vantage point where they could observe the victim. They would pick their moment to kill the victim, and then they would get out of town immediately. And and this this worked because by the time the local police started to round up suspects, the the Murder, Inc. agent whether it was Pittsburgh Phil Strauss or somebody else, was already back in Brooklyn and often didn't know the name of the victim until they read about the murder in the newspapers the next day. And this um, arrangement uh, accounted for hundreds and hundreds of murders and lasted about a decade. And the theory was if there were no informants, there couldn't be any prosecutions. And that, that theory really worked. It worked for a long time until, until it didn't. And then, you know, and then th- things went really bad. When we come back, the murders continue. And as the body count rises, a closer scrutiny by law enforcement. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. One of the many murders committed by Kid Twist and his gang had to do with a dock worker, a labor organizer named Peter Panto. Right. So Peter Panto was a a young and very charismatic dock worker, a longshoreman 
and within the hierarchy of longshoremen, he was um, something of a leader. He was a leader on the docks, but he was also a leader in union organizing, and he was influenced by communist ideas. Um, remember that this is the Depression, and the dock workers are immigrants, and none of them know from day to day if they're going to have work. And the work was brutally difficult and dangerous. And Peter Panto began to galvanize the union members against the mob, which really was leeching on, on the union. It not only controlled the union, but it was sucking away their, their funds. And so the mob, the mob warned Peter Panto that he had better stop, and he, he didn't. And then one night, he was in his apartment with his girlfriend and his fiance, actually. And some men came and said they wanted to talk to him. And Peter Panto came back in the apartment and said to his fiance, I have to talk to these men. If I don't show up by the morning, call the police. And he left. And he was, he was, never, he was never seen again. Um, they found his body some years later, um, buried in the muddy, the muddy tidal flats across New York Harbor over in, in, uh, in New Jersey. And so this, this was the way that Abe Rellis' Murder, Inc. operated. Um, if people threatened the mob in, in any way, well, they didn't, for the most part, they didn't threaten the mob because they knew that what happened to Peter Panto would happen to them. And Albert Anastasia was behind that, right? Yeah, Albert Anastasia ruled the Brooklyn docks with an absolute iron fist. And Peter Panto was the, the young, well-spoken, charismatic um, upstart who threatened... Anastasia's iron grip on every aspect of the ecosystem of the of the of the docks, and so uh, Albert Anastasia would not stand for this. So, at a certain point, Rellis and Buckhalter began to form a closer relationship um, due to intensifying circumstances. Yeah, I mean, I think you're referring to the time that. Um, that prosecutors began to close in on, on Lepke Bookhalter, who's, you know, Lepke Bookhalter is not a household name the way, say, Lucky Luciano or Bugsy Siegel um, might be, but he was every bit as powerful in that world. Um, when prosecutors closed in on Lepke, Lepke Bookhalter, um, in particular Thomas Dewey, who um, later ran for president unsuccessfully. Um, in any case, Bookhalter went into hiding, and it was Abe Rellis's job to really be his consigliere while he was in, in hiding. Um, Rellis found him a series of hiding spots in Brooklyn. Rellis fed him, coordinated family visits, and was a kind of, you know, a kind of protector during his long period in, in confinement. And, and part of what happened in that period is that it fell to Reles and his Murder, Inc. associates to murder anybody who might be capable of testifying against Bookhalter. I think Bookhalter knew that he couldn't stay he couldn't stay a fugitive forever. And the time came when he turned himself in or when he was caught. He really wanted to go to trial with nobody to testify against him. And that, that job fell to Abe Reles. He, in this period of the story, is really the bloodiest because Murder, Inc. was just seeking out these people in the particularly in the garment district who had any knowledge of book alters various 
rackets and corruptions, and it was a bloodbath. I mean, they they disappeared one after another. Yeah, if there was ever a true crime book, it's it's this one. <laughs> it, it's chock full of murdering kits, all committed in horrific fashion. But our time is limited, so I want to make sure I ask you about this. Besides Thomas Dewey and the district attorney's office, organizations like the FBI were also involved in all of this. And there's a really interesting story you tell in your book about Walter Winchell and his team up with J. Edgar Hoover to capture Buckhalter. Would you share it with us? Right. I mean, it seems like a story that is just like, it's hard to believe that it's even true. It seems like something out of so much out of a, a movie. Um, Walter Winchell, who don't, for people who don't know that name, was not just a gossip columnist, but he was really the gossip columnist of that period. And I think we can say that he more or less invented the idea of a gossip columnist. And he knew everybody. He knew professional athletes. He knew actors and actresses. And he knew mobsters. And so he was a kind of a natural person to broker a deal between the mob and the FBI. So when Lepke Bookhalter decided that he wanted to come out of hiding, that he wanted to turn himself in and make a deal, he turned to Walter Winchell um, and said, can you talk to J. Edgar Hoover of the FBI for me? And that's, that's exactly what happened. Walter Winchell, the gossip columnist, put these two men together and um, really just straight out of a movie, Walter Winchell um, drove around Manhattan, you know, late one night and collected these two men and got them in the same in the same car together. And that's how Lepke Bullcoulter turned himself in, which it didn't take very long for him to regret that because the deal that he thought he was making wasn't quite what didn't work out the way he thought it it would and and he ended up being the the one um you know really top gangster who who ended up going to the electric chair so what were the circumstances that led kid twist to turn government witness to become a snitch yeah i mean it's just it's just an extraordinary thing that this man who had spent his entire adult life killing informants then became the biggest informant of all. He was arrested in association with a murder along with a couple of his men. I think at first it probably didn't bother him that much because he had been arrested so many times and always got off, not just because he was kind of smart and um, guileful, but also because of the corruptions involved, judges were paid off, etc. But the, the Brooklyn district attorney, who was an, a man named William O'Dwyer, did something very shrewd. He put Rellas in the Manhattan jail, and then he put Rellas's other culprits, his associates, in other jails in other boroughs of New York. So he isolated them, and it served to make them paranoid. Each of them began to worry that the other one was talking. They didn't, none of them wanted to be the one who was left holding the bag. It was sort of like musical chairs. And the other thing that kind of plays into the story is that Abe Rellas was convinced that he was dying. He had been spitting up blood um, quite regularly. He would, you know, while he sat in the tombs, the notorious old jail in lower Manhattan, he would slowly day and night fill up a drinking glass with blood. He would spit, spit up blood. He was convinced that he had cancer. In fact, he didn't have cancer, but he thought he did. And he thought that he was going to die. Um, and so he wanted to make a deal to, in part, to protect his family. Um, 
he figured that he would he would cooperate with the prosecutors. He would probably die either from cancer or the mob would kill him. But he wanted to make a deal with the prosecutors so that his family would be able to escape all of this um, and be safe. The witness protection program didn't exist at that time, but he essentially, in negotiation with William O'Dwyer, set up a version of the witness protection program for his family. And so he came in from the cold, so to speak, and he began to talk to William O'Dwyer, and he told O'Dwyer and his assistant district attorney about hundreds of murders. And he had a, an encyclopedic memory for these murders. He could recall with absolute, in absolute detail the circumstances behind each of these murders. And so he was like a he was like a prosecutor's dream witness. And Abe Reles testified against his four lieutenants, his lifelong friends. Um, they were tried, convicted, and went to Sing Sing prison and went to the electric chair. All four died. And at that point, William O'Dwyer turned his attention to the big bosses. He was going to go after Le Lepke Bookalter, Bugsy Siegel, and the rest. And on the night before Abe Reles was to testify against Lepke Bookhalter, his wife came to visit him. By her account, they had sex in the hotel room where he was kept guarded. And then she presented him with essentially like divorce papers. Um, he was drunk. They had a fight and she left. The next morning... Abe Reles went out the window of his hotel room and died. It was a six-story hotel room. The enduring mystery is how and why did he go out that window? Was he trying to escape to get to his family? He did have mob money stashed away. And there is a theory that he was trying to get that mob money, escape, collect his family, and disappear. The official police conclusion was that it was an escape attempt. But most people would say that the mob probably killed him. It was well documented that Bugsy Siegel had come back to New York from Los Angeles had collected a great deal of money and was making a concerted effort to kill Abrellas before he could testify against anybody else. So did the mob kill him? Did the mob kill him with police cooperation? Did one of the inf other informants that he was being housed with, did one of them kill him? Because they had reasons to hate him. And then the, the, I think the most interesting question is, did William O'Dwyer, the district attorney, have something to do with murdering Abe Reles? William O'Dwyer, who was later mayor, had grown up on the streets of Brooklyn as a cop. He was part of a system of corruption that existed in Brooklyn at that time, it's very hard for us to even understand today. The mob had so much money, they paid off not just the police, but judges, district attorneys, and city officials. And so when Abrellas began to talk in these trials, he was eventually going to talk about the city corruption. And so I don't think it's too far-fetched to think that William O'Dwyer might have had something to do with his murder. Interesting. So the hotel he was put up at was called the Half Moon Hotel, uh, located on Coney Island, famously in room 623, which, which you mentioned was called the Rat Suite. <laughs> right. It was a half a dozen informants were housed in this dilapidated old seafront hotel right on the boardwalk in, in Coney Island. The police had 
um, erected a, a steel door to isolate them and protect them. Um, it, it, was a, it was an unusual situation because they weren't prisoners. They weren't being charged with anything because they were cooperating, but they weren't exactly free to go either. So they were in a kind of, in a kind of limbo. The steel door was, was to keep people out because the mob was going to try to kill these informants. But the steel door was also to keep them in. And so they lived in this kind of funny, in this kind of funny limbo until the trials were over. So when his body was found, there was a sheet near his body. Uh, he had gained a good 20 pounds in his captivity, you write. So these things point to the theory that he had tried to escape, um, but he was not physically able to handle his escape. He could have taken a misstep. Yeah, I mean, it would appear that Abe Reles tied two bed sheets together to form a crude rope. Somebody, whether it was Abe Reles or somebody else, tied one end of that bed sheet to um, a radiator and and then threw the other end of the sheet out the window. Now, the, the sheet was not long enough to reach all the way down six stories, but it was long enough to reach the window underneath his room. That, that room happened to be unoccupied. Um, when Abrellas fell to what was the, 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 the roof of, the, of a kind of kitchen annex, a gravel-covered roof, and died, the forensics showed that his, um, his shoes were scuffed. And in fact, the window of the room beneath his, um, the windowsill was also scuffed. And the screen around the window had kind of been jimmied. So there, there is some reason to believe that he may have been trying to get into, simply get into the window underneath his own room. Now, that would have been a way to escape because then he would have circumvented the police guard at the elevator. It's possible that he was simply playing a prank on, on, the, on the police because he played pranks on the police all the time. Um, the reason that all of that might not hold together as a plausible explanation is that his body was found some distance from the wall of the hotel suggesting that he had been thrown out. In other words, if he was trying to get in the window beneath his own room, you would expect that he would fall directly down. But his body was found some distance out from, from the wall, which suggested that something, something else may, may have happened. I think you mentioned that just prior to his death, just a day or two before, someone had made an inquiry about the room just below his, whether it had been reserved. Right. So, so somebody called. Was it Reles? It may have been Reles, and he may have been calling because he was planning this escape or planning this prank. It may have been somebody else who was trying to stage this murder scene to look as if Relas were trying to escape. We don't know who placed that call. So there is reason to believe that he was trying to escape. There is some suggestion that he may have simply been trying to get, you know, play a prank, as I keep saying, on the, on, on, on the guards. There is also reason to believe that he may have been thrown out the window and that the the sheet and the scuff marks, et cetera, were all, and, and the phone call concerning the room on the fifth floor, that they were all kind of staged to disguise what, what actually happened. Did he have full access to a telephone? And uh, if, if so, was it being monitored? There was, a, there was a phone in the suite. I can't say to what extent it was, it was, it was monitored. Things were very loose in that uh, in that suite. There were female visitors, and there was a lot of booze. And the guards who were supposed to check on them every fifteen minutes really did not check on them. 
So it was not really a very secure situation. When we return, more about how Relis's death would affect the investigation of organized crime in early 1940s America. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. From Fort Sumter to the Battle of Gettysburg. From the Emancipation Proclamation to Appomattox Courthouse. From the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Compromise of 1877. From Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman. To Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. The Civil War and Reconstruction was a pivotal era in American history. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. And we're the hosts of a podcast that takes a deep dive into that era when a war was fought to save the Union and to free the slaves. And when the work to rebuild the nation after that war was over turned into a struggle to guarantee liberty and justice for all Americans. Look for the Civil War and Reconstruction wherever you find your podcasts. Serial killers, strange disappearances, unexplained mysteries, terrible disasters. I'm Nate Hale, and in my show, The Conspirators, I'm here to tell you all the stories from history your teacher never told you about. Hear the real story behind the Bermuda Triangle, or about the history of people drinking blood to stay young, or about the serial killer operating in Nazi-occupied Paris, or what dark secret lurked within the walls of a Scottish castle. In my show, The Conspirators, I take you on a journey through some of the darkest corners of history where you'll hear about the folklore, myths, and misconceptions behind some of the darkest events that ever happened. Listen to The Conspirators on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, sometimes the truth really is stranger than fiction. And back again. So, during his time as a government witness... Kid Twist had been flown out to Los Angeles, correct? Twice, to testify against Bugsy Siegel. Yeah, that's, that's correct. So Bugsy Siegel, who, who was you know, based in L.A. And, and famously was involved in developing the Flamingo Hotel, which was sort of the, the start of Las Vegas. Bugsy Siegel had grown up um, in New York with all of these other gangsters and had migrated out to the West Coast to kind of run the West Coast operations, um, was on trial um, or going to be on trial. And Abe Reles was on loan to the Los Angeles District Attorney to testify against uh, Bugsy Siegel. Um, similarly, Abe Reles would have, if had he lived, would have been loaned out to other district attorneys around the country. So there were a lot of people who stood to benefit by Abe Reles dying. And there were rumors at the time that Bugsy Siegel had offered Abe Reles's wife $50,000 in exchange for Reles's escape. And the idea was that he would disappear, go hide out somewhere, and wouldn't be able to testify against the organization anymore. Right. I mean, that's, that is, that is one um, possibility is that Abe Reles was trying to escape just simply to go into his own, you know, mob sponsored witness protection program. 
definitely a possibility. I will say that there were also documented cases of snipers, um, also sponsored by Bugsy Siegel, who tried to take shots at um, Abe Reles as he moved to and from the courtroom for these early, early trials. Do you have any personal feeling? I mean, again, I, I know it's speculation, but what do you think happened to Rellis? Do you think it was an escape or a hit? You know, Eric, I, I guess when, when somebody writes a book about a case like this, it's sort of expected that they would come forward with, you know, with their own theory about, about what happened. And I may have, you know, I may have erred by not doing that. I think readers expect it. But the truth is, I really don't, I mean, I'm being honest when I say I don't think that the, I don't think that the, that the forensics and the evidence points to one single conclusion in, in this area. Um, years later, Lucky Luciano uh, was living in Naples, Italy, and did a series of interviews with a movie director who was going to make a movie about his life, and, and, and then they had thought they would do a book. And um, in those interviews, Lucky Luciano described paying off the police to kill Reles. The only problem is, I mean, we might take that to be, you know, to be kind of conclusive evidence of what happened. But the only problem is that that book, those interviews turned out to be terribly inaccurate. And a lot of doubt was cast on, on the events described in that book. So I don't, even, the, even that book, which might have solved this mystery itself, be, became its own mystery. Um, so I guess what I would say to answer your question, Eric, is I, it's hard to imagine that Bugsy Siegel and the mob did not have anything to do with Abrella's dying. It's just hard to picture, picture that happening. I mean, one thing that is worth noting in all of this is that when questions about all of this came up later, when William O'Dwyer was mayor of New York, he very abruptly resigned as mayor and sought a appointment from President Harry Truman to be ambassador to Mexico. So when questions about Reles and other matters came up, the mayor of New York kind of, you know, got out of town abruptly. Um, pretty suspicious. Um, and in 1951, um, the, the Senate Kefauver Committee, which, which looked into all sorts of aspects of corruption around the country, they zeroed in on this question and they brought William O'Dwyer back from back from Mexico to question him on this, this very topic, but to no conclusive end. And so it remains a mystery. What about Meyer Lansky? Do you have any idea about whether he was involved in all of this? I mean, he may very well have been, been, um, been directly involved in, in Abrellis's death. I, there, his name does not come up in the depositions and in the interviews about it. You know, I guess what I would say about Meyer Lansky is that he was part of that mob board of directors that Lucky Luciano put together. So he would have been in on the discussions about the formation of Murder, Inc., Murder, Inc.'s operations, but I don't, I'm not aware of any evidence that directly links him to Abrellis' death. Did Hoover, did, did the FBI ever investigate Rellis' death? Well, I mean, Abrellis' death kind of came, came up, you know, I mentioned that it came up when Lucky Luciano tried to publish his, you know, these, he did publish these memoirs. And then when the famous case of a informant named Valachi also mentioned uh, the mob uh, killing Abe Reles, you know, the, the, what happened is that the, after the Kefauver committee asked a lot of questions about Abe Reles, the baton was passed to the Brooklyn district attorney, uh, a man named Miles McDonald. 
And it was really his job, not the FBI's at that point, to assemble a grand jury and um, decide whether they should prosecute somebody or not. And the grand jury decided not to, which shocked the judge in the case. Um, the judge was one of the most esteemed lawyers in, had been one of the, had the great, one of the great legal careers in New York at that time. And the judge was shocked that they didn't, that they would drop this case um, and conclude that Abrellas was trying to escape. So the judge said, before he dismissed the grand jury, he said, um, I hope some evidence will emerge someday that will lead us to Abrellas' killer. And we're still waiting for that to happen. So what effect did Rellis's death have on other cases being prosecuted? Did, did everything come to a grinding halt? Or were authorities able to use the information he'd already given them to go after others in their sites? Well, Lepke Bookhalter was prosecuted and, as, as, as we mentioned, did go to the electric chair. But they were expecting to prosecute, to go after Bugsy Siegel, Albert Anastasia, and dozens of others, dozens but with, with Arellis' death, I mean, Arellis was really the marquee witness and the number one informant. And without him, they were hamstrung. Um, and then something else happened. World War II happened. And so when Pearl Harbor came along, everything was kind of, was kind of suspended. What eventually happened to Albert Anastasia? Albert Anastasia appeared that he was going to be one of the few to, you know, to, to, to get away on unscathed. And he, he was a, uh, he went into hiding during this period that we're talking about and nobody knew where he was. Well, it turned out that he was hiding by joining the army as ludicrous as that sounds joining the army turned out to be a really good way to hide from, from district attorneys. One thing Albert Anastasia knew about was loading ships. And so he eventually uh, was transferred within the army to a base in, I think, Pennsylvania, um, where they taught recruits how to load and unload supplies, you know, from ships. And he sat out the war that way and uh, was eventually pardoned and he was assassinated in a barber shop in a midtown hotel, and I think it was 1957. And he, the murder of Albert Anastasia, in a way, I think is sort of the symbolic ending to, to this story. He was kind of the last of that generation of, of mobsters, and, and his, his death kind of brings the curtain down on this story. There is a lot that we weren't able to cover today. Um, you go into depth into the killings of Arnold Rothstein, Dutch Schultz, the trial of, of Lucky Luciano, plus the murders of dozens of lower-level grunts that were working in association with Murder, Inc. So there is a lot to digest for anyone who wants to dig in. But organizing this book, I, I mean, I know you, you said you wanted it to flow like a movie, but it had to have been difficult to get it organized while still giving it a narrative flow. There were so many characters, things going on. It must have been a real challenge. It was, Eric. I really worried about that part of it. I worried about there being so many characters and so many murders. And, 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 and I, um, you know, I did not want to include murders gratuitously. I didn't want to include murders simply, you know, for the, just for the sake of having more murders. So I tried to be very judicious about which murders to describe. I tried to only really include murders that were relevant to the story and move the story along. And similarly, there, this was really a cast 
of thousands. And it was hard to leave people out. It really was because there were such unbelievable characters with such incredible stories associated with them that it was hard not to let them join the story. Um, and it was structurally difficult because some characters, you know, appear and then they disappear for 150 pages and then they come back in. So it felt a little bit like orchestrating, I don't know, like an opera or something, you know, getting people on stage and getting them off stage wasn't always, wasn't always easy, but I felt lucky to have these characters, you know, I, um, there were, there are a lot of loose ends in this book that I would like to go back and try to follow up on, if not in another book, then in, in some form. I'm not sure how. Yeah. So when Abe Rellis dies, is that pretty much the end of Murder, Inc.? Or does it exist on some level after his death? Well, I mean, his his I mean, his death, you know, brings us right up to the beginning of World War Two. And so, you know, a funny thing happened during World War Two. And that is the mob, the Italian mobsters, they really hated Mussolini. And so they were more or less happy to help out the the call, the war cause. Um, Lucky Luciano really in a in a very organized and explicit way, gave himself over to Navy intelligence, number one, to help them keep the, the New York City docks safe from sabotage, and number two, to act as a kind of intelligence apparatus for the Allies in advance of the invasion of Sicily and mainland Italy. And as a reward, Lucky Luciano was pardoned and sent back to Italy um, after the war. But this is a long-winded way of saying that during the war, the mob really kind of worked for the government in some really implausible um, and funny way. And then after the war, the Italian mafia picked up where it left off. But the Jewish mafia, I mean, there were still Jewish mobsters but the Jewish mafia did not really didn't exist after the war the way it did in the 1930s. Yeah, I've got to say, uh, reading your book, one of the most memorable parts for me personally, amidst all of the carnage, murder, double crossings, twists and turns, was when Rellis turned against his two childhood friends in that courtroom. And, and not even... Pittsburgh Phil Strauss, who kind of remained aloof a bit, um, although he did try to pretend that he was insane at one point. But his other childhood friend, Bugsy Goldstein, who had a massive mental breakdown once he realized he was actually going to die in an electric chair. He had a tough time facing his punishment. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting that these men who were sadistic and psychopathic killers that when they um, came to trial, many of them really were kind of babies. I mean, I mean, not not that you could blame anybody for being scared to go to the electric chair, but Bugsy Goldstein in particular lost all composure. You know, he wept, he pulled out his, you know, on his hair, he begged, he he threw himself on the ground. Um, for a man who had been through so much tough stuff, it's just, it's interesting. He, he was not able to be stoic. The, the, I mean, the one person who really was stoic as he went to the electric chair was Lepke Bookhalter. Um, he did not try to make any deals. He did, you know, he did not um, portray himself as being a, the victim. He stayed true to the old you know, La Cosa Nostra notion that you, you don't, you don't tell on your, on your brethren. He, he went to the electric chair with, without, uh, without being a turncoat. I'd love it if you could share your website with listeners and information maybe on how someone could get a hold of you. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this, my website is michaelcanell.com. So that, Canell is spelled C-A-N-N-E-L-L. -L. 
michaelcanal.com and my email is michaelcanal at mac.com. So, you know, I love to hear from readers. I like to keep the conversation going. Um, readers could also tweet me um, at Michael Canal, and um, I love to hear from people. I'd like to hear what, what readers think, good and bad. I'm very thick-skinned. I like to think I'm very thick-skinned about about my work, so so be in touch. Oh, that's great. And the book is everywhere, and it just came out in October, right? Came out in October. Yeah. Well, this has been so interesting. Thank you so much for spending some time with me and talking about this. Eric, I really enjoyed it, and just I really appreciate your having me. Absolutely. Once again, I have been speaking to Michael Cannell. His book is called A Brotherhood Betrayed, The Man Behind the Rise and Fall of Murder, Inc. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.